The reading is from Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, 14, 32 to 38, and 41 to 47. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout Jews from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in their own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. People of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers and sisters, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. We stand for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preachers just get out of the way, far, far less of me and far, far more of you, that your people gathered this morning would be edified, your son Jesus glorified, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? When the day of Pentecost arrived, some 120 followers of Jesus were gathered in a room. By the end of the day, 3,000. By the end of the week, 5,000. By the end of the century, they spanned the entire Roman Empire, turning it upside down. Spread not by sword, marketing campaign, or program, but by personal persuasion. The lives, the communities of those first followers of Jesus were just that contagious. What happened when the day of Pentecost arrived? Each year we celebrate Pentecost, reorienting ourselves to what happened that day, because what happened that day is the reason you and I are here today. It is the very thing that will empower, sustain, and transform us. When the day of Pentecost arrived. Pentecost was already a feast. It was one of the three pilgrimage feasts of Judaism. The population of Jerusalem swelled with religious pilgrims. It was the beginning of the grain harvest. The feast of first fruits. As the first taste of the harvest was offered to God in thanksgiving. Pentecost then is the first taste of an actual future. Pentecost, a promise that there is more to come when the day of Pentecost arrived. What happened that day must be seen through the lens of what they were celebrating, the first taste of an actual future, the promise that there was more to come when the day of Pentecost arrived. The followers of Jesus were gathered together. The sound of a mighty rushing wind, 
and divided tongues as a fire came and descended upon each person. Can you imagine for a moment the fear, the wonder, the panic? What's happening here? Are we safe? At least as a gathering of faithful Jews, they would have a framework for trying to understand what was happening. This was a movement of God. For whenever God showed up, there was wind, there was fire. In that covenant-making, covenant-making ceremony with Abraham, God showed up as a flaming torch. God met Moses in a burning bush. God led the people of Israel through the desert in a pillar of fire. The Spirit of God descended, this kind of glory of God descended upon the temple in fire. An image that tells us of God's power, His purity, His refining holiness. But fire isn't safe. You don't want to get too close. There's separation, there's, there's distance. When the Israelites saw the fire of God descend upon Mount Sinai, they recoiled in fear. Moses, you go talk to God. We don't want to get too close. You be the go-between. But now the fire wasn't coming down on a mountain or a bush or a temple. It was coming down on them. The implications are staggering. When the people wanted to meet with God, they went to the temple. When the people wanted to do business with God, they went to the temple to seek forgiveness, to give thanks, to dedicate their lives. Now the Spirit in fire descends upon a people, a community, making them, as Second Peter says, partakers of the divine nature to reflect the power and holiness and beauty and purposes of God. No longer would God be an encountered in a temple made of stone. God would be encountered in a spirit-filled community. Now this truth should be a huge corrective to Western Christianity. So influenced by Western individualism, we've fostered a me and Jesus spirituality. Or should I say a me and my Jesus spirituality, for we so often craft Jesus in our own image. A few months ago, I had breakfast with someone who used to be deeply engaged in the life of Christian faith. No longer, he said. I no longer identify as a follower of Jesus. He filled in the story. It wasn't a story of deconstruction. It wasn't a story of being hurt by a church or a Christian upbringing. It was simply that he had disconnected himself from the trappings, as he called them, of the Christian faith disconnected himself from community, from regular patterns of worship, to see if there was an experience of God outside of those things. And do you know what he found? Nothing. Nothing. I no longer identify as a follower of Jesus. But such an experience is not a proof that there is no God. But it is certainly a proof that there is no me and my Jesus spirituality. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, Tim, I've had my personal encounters with Jesus. But let me ask you, how many of those encounters have been outside of the context of community? 
And I'd include the reading of scripture or the reading of books as part of community for there you're interacting with another. My guess would be that very few of what we call personal encounters were actually personal. And even those probably required a community to understand, to interpret, to live into. Over the last number of years, I've had many conversations with people at Little T who've been saying, I feel distant from God. I feel like God just isn't there. And I'll often ask, have you been engaged in Christian community? Have you been engaged in a pattern of regular embodied worship? And more often than not, the answer is no. And part of the motivation for this series on the richness of embodied worship, the invitation to engage in the embodied life of community, comes out of a conviction that is rooted in the story of Pentecost, that God is known in the context of spirit-filled community. And so it is out of deep, deep love for you that we extend that loving plea. Get re-engaged in the life of embodied community, for it is there that we encounter the love, the grace, the power and purposes of the living God. When the day of Pentecost arrived, the spirit of the living God descends on a people, a community, to form and shape them to be a first taste of Jesus' future. The promise that in Jesus there is more to come. And so what is the first taste of that actual future? What's the first thing that in our story that the Spirit does with those first followers of Jesus? The Spirit empowers them, right, to proclaim the good news of Jesus in all of the languages of the people of Jerusalem. For what purpose? so that the ethnic and cultural diversity of that city could be drawn into this new community united in Jesus. And not since Genesis 10 has such a list of different nations been recorded. Genesis 10 is the story right before the Tower of Babel, right? Where the peoples of the earth are united together in building a tower to reach to the heavens. Out of their desire to be their own spiritual lords and masters, they unite in building this tower. And their pride and idolatry leads them to be divided. Their their language is confused. Sin then sits under all that divides the human race. And here at Pentecost, the Spirit empowers the disciples to address that grievous reality, to speak of the truth of Jesus in all the languages of the people, to draw them into renewed human community centered upon Jesus. It's a miracle. A miracle that continues to this day. For the Christian church is the most ethnically diverse community on the face of our planet. It is. But tragically, that is not borne out in each individual expression of church, right? It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, It is appalling that the most segregated hour in Christian America is 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. He said that 60 years ago. Not much has changed since. We're in the midst of a movement yearning for racial justice. 
And sadly, as Christians, we've been spending the vast majority of our energies critiquing the philosophical underpinnings of the movement, critiquing the Marxist ideas, critiquing critical race theory. Is that where our energies should be invested? Last week, I was at a conference in the UK called Future Church Frontiers, and our last day was in Oxford. And we had a few hours with Anglican scholar N.T. Wright. And he was shaking his head in disbelief. He said, why are we spending so much time critiquing the movement? We should be critiquing ourselves. For we have abdicated any responsibility for being at the forefront of pressing toward racial justice. Why? For that is the future that Jesus is bringing On Pentecost, the Spirit empowers the church to be a foretaste of that future. A future where every tongue and tribe and nation are gathered around the throne of the living God in a renewed cosmos. Now, Certainly not every individual Christian church can reflect the fullness of racial diversity. But we can ask, does it reflect the diversity of the community around it? And if not... Why not? Our conference began at Holy Trinity Brompton. Their rector is Nikki Gumbel, who you might know from the Alpha videos. And in a candid moment, he was grumbling about the makeup of their worship team that morning. He said, this is the first time in years that we've had an all-white worship team. This can't be, he said. And his reasoning was instructive. He says, this isn't tokenism. Our worship should reflect our future, where every tongue and tribe and nation is gathered around the throne of the living God in worship. And the Spirit descends that we would be a foretaste of that future. At Pentecost, the Spirit empowers the disciples to proclaim the good news in the languages of the people. And Luke tells us they they were cut to the heart. What shall we do, they said. And the response is given. Repent and be baptized and you'll receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they do. And 3,000 are added to their number when the day of Pentecost arrived. And then in the closing verses of Acts 2, we have a window open to reveal how the Spirit formed and shaped this beautifully diverse community to be a foretaste of the future. He gives us what defines renewed human community. And he says they devoted themselves. They gave themselves completely over to the apostles' teaching, meaning they received King Jesus, meaning they modeled their lives after the patterns of Jesus' glorious kingdom, the patterns of forgiveness, of love, of justice, of peace. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves completely over to one another, to fellowship. They were a community that deeply loved and listened and cared. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves completely over to joyous worship, formally and informally. They devoted themselves. They gave themselves completely over to generous, compassionate service. They sold what they had and gave to whomever had need. 
They devoted themselves. They gave themselves over to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Those who were being welcomed in. Oh, how we might yearn for such an experience of church. To reflect such joy and beauty and love and generosity. For grievously it seems that every time we turn around... There is in the church scandal, sin, the failure of leadership. And even those that seem relatively unscathed, it isn't quite what we would hope for or yearn for. For we often encounter communities that emphasize one of these aspects over and against the others. We have those communities that give themselves almost exclusively over to doctrine Classes and courses abound. They have all their doctrinal ducks in a row. But their worship only satisfies the intellect. They're often incredibly harsh with one another, such that only those who have all the same beliefs are left. They're a mile deep, but only an inch wide. And then there are those communities that are so concerned about growth that they water down the truth to make it more palatable, and they're a mile wide and an inch deep. Then there are those communities that care deeply for one another, but, but no one new can break in. No one new is welcome for fear that they'll unsettle the dynamics. They're so inward focused. We have communities that give themselves over to generous, compassionate service, but their, their worship is empty, their teaching confused. They might as well be the United Way. We look out at the church and grievously don't see this beautifully balanced, renewed human community. So what's to be done? Well, if you were to pick up a book on what the church is meant to be and how to get there, and there are many such books, you will find these verses focused upon. This. This is what the church should be. Beautifully balanced. But you know what mark of this renewed human community that is often missed? One mark above every other mark? The signs and wonders that are accomplished by the disciples. Now its absence should be greatly instructive. For one of the primary sins in the Western church is our self-sufficiency. We believe that we can do this church thing all on our own. We can't do the signs and wonders thing on our own, right? I mean, that, that, that's God's work. That's the Spirit's work. Oh, <laughs> that's the stinking point. In verse 42, where Luke begins to tell us what this renewed human community looks like, he uses a Greek particle that can be translated, and they, or so they. And most translations render it, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and they. But the whole force of the story of Pentecost invites us to translate it, and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, so they. So they. This new community is the result of, the fruit of, in utter dependence upon the Spirit. John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, writes with clarity, 
Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the lawgiver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character without his fruit, no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. The church without the Spirit is dead. Many of you will know the Alpha Course, that introduction to the Christian faith that we run here at Little T. And it came out of a church in London, England called Holy Trinity Brompton. And although he didn't develop it, it was their rector, Nicky Gumbel, who was enabled by God's grace to bring it to the world. And now some 30 million people have had the chance to encounter Jesus through it. And at the conference this week, he said something incredibly instructive about it. He said, Alpha is designed to fail unless the Holy Spirit shows up. It's designed to fail unless the Spirit shows up. Church is designed to fail unless the Spirit shows up. And sadly, we don't often live into that truth. We don't often live in dependence upon the Spirit who gives us life. Instead, it is often said, if the Holy Spirit left the church, would we even notice when the day of Pentecost arrived? The Spirit brew together a beautifully diverse community, forming them to be a foretaste of Jesus' future, a promise that there was more to come. And 120 became 3,000, became 5,000, and then spanned the entire open empire, turning it upside down, spread not by sword or a marketing campaign or a program, but by personal persuasion. The lives, the communities of those first followers of Jesus were just that contagious. They received the gift of the Spirit. So they. So they. So let me ask us, where do we, Little Trinity as a church, need more and more of the infilling of the Holy Spirit? For when God's Spirit comes upon us, when God's Spirit is given freedom, when God's Spirit descends, it produces a beauty that no other human community can achieve. We can't program for it, though programs can be a vehicle of its, its expression. We can't preach for it, though effectively pointing to Jesus allows the Spirit to form joy in our worship. We can't plan for it, though being attentive to the leading of the Spirit is absolutely necessary. We can only depend. We can only rely. We can only trust. We can only... Give freedom. We can only determine not to quench. Often, at the end of a sermon, we'll leave a few moments of quiet reflection for the Spirit to allow God's truth to settle in. But today I want to do something just a little bit differently. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward, and they're going to lead us in a song that we often sing here. It's a prayer. A prayer for the Spirit to do His work in us and through us. And if you're comfortable doing so as we sing this song, I'll invite you to hold your hands out in front of you in a posture of reception. 
For what we do with our bodies in worship matters. So I'll invite you to stand. And in song and in prayer, we'll invite the Spirit to do in and through us that we would be a foretaste of Jesus' future, a promise that there's more to come. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, come breathe new life into our willing souls.
You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.